This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Regardless of the fact that it was a difficult moment and it is a difficult moment, the fact that their dependents are able to have food on their table, that in itself is a miracle and something that just changes the entire equation. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to be able to produce food for all those children. It's a blessing from God. More like the Joseph thing, you know? Um, mm-hmm. you, you don't know when, when you're doing something, um, but, but when, when the drought came uh, during the time of Joseph, and then now the seven years of plenty were important. So um, now that the pandemic came, the fact that we were always doing production of food and, and being self-reliant in one way or another, um, it was just a blessing from God. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Adopting Hope, a podcast about adoptive, foster, and spiritual parenting. I'm Joyce Koo Dowerbull. And I'm Sasha Parker. We're both moms, and we're both adoptive moms. And on each episode of our show, you'll hear from a mom, and sometimes a dad, about their journey in adoption and foster care. Our hope is that this podcast provides hope and encouragement as you hear these stories. Whether you're an adoptive, foster, or spiritual mother yourself, an adoptee, or someone who just wants to encourage and love adoptive and foster parents. These stories are all windows into the gospel, the story of a God who adopts us and loves us with a redeeming love, and whose love empowers and compels us to extend that love through the unique joys and challenges that come from adoption and foster care. Thanks for tuning in. We pray this encourages you as you listen. We have a special episode on today's podcast. We're going to talk to one of CT's associate editors, Kara Bettis. Welcome, Kara. Thank you, Joyce, Sasha. It's wonderful to be with you guys today. So you've written an article in this December's issue of Christianity Today called What You Do for Street Children You Do for Me, about what's happening with the Moli Children's Home in Kenya. And it's an amazing, amazing story. Can you tell us a little bit about who Charles Moli is and how he began his work caring for now thousands and thousands of street children? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Charles Mully is a 71-year-old Kenyan businessman uh, turned philanthropist who grew up in a small village about 40 miles uh, outside of Nairobi. And he had a um, rough start. His dad was an alcoholic and his mom worked as a farmhand while he was growing up. And they actually abandoned him when he was really young in the care of an aunt Uh, so that they could go find work. So he told me, and he testifies in his own autobiography, that he spent um, time even begging for food around his own village growing up. But eventually, you know, when he turned 18, he had an encounter with the Lord, and he ended up being inspired 
to go to Nairobi to find uh, work. And so he ended up working up uh, his way up into becoming a very successful businessman and started to the point where he started his own transportation company called Mullyways, and he was involved in the oil and gas industries. Eventually, he started feeling like God was calling him to rescue street children, and that's what the article talks about. So Charles Mully's personal story is so remarkable. He identifies with street children because he was one of them. He knew what it was like to be abandoned by his family and to beg on the streets for food. In your article, you talk about how he had a transformational day, how he left his companies to go and rescue the street children. Can you tell us a little bit about that day of surrender? Yeah, absolutely. Before um, I do that, actually, I should mention one of the things, especially for Americans who might not have spent a lot of time in Kenya, um, to note is that there are a lot of street children in a lot of the cities. This is common around the world. But in Kenya, you know, there are estimates that even up to 300,000 children live and survive on the streets. And I guess about 20 percent of those are in Nairobi alone. That's a huge number of children on the streets in Kenya. And I'm wondering, what factors contribute to that? Yeah, some of the main factors are mostly poverty. And so a lot of these kids, either with their families or separate from their families, go turn to the streets um, for survival or other kinds of conflict and um, abuse, unfortunately. That's another factor. So we talk a little bit about that in the piece. But it's unfortunate because a lot of the things that they escape maybe or are forced to leave their families they, you know, they find even more problems on the streets. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's a very vulnerable situation for these kids Mm -hmm. to be surviving. So tell us about that day that Molly was confronted with street children and, you know, it kind of brought him to that place of surrender. Yeah, absolutely. So Charles was in Nairobi running his businesses in the city for a meeting and he ended up parking his car and facing or meeting several street children who asked to watch his car in exchange for money, and he ignored them. And then he returned to his car after the meeting and found that his car was gone, um, and he had to take public transportation back home, which, you know, maybe it was even one of his buses that he owned. So it's interesting to think about that. (laughs) And Just the Lord started, the way he tells it now is the Lord, you know, really started to work on him. He was convicted that he had ignored these kids, especially, you know, considering the place that he had come from. And so he just, you know, the wheels started turning for him. And so eventually there was one day in 1989, so over 30 years ago, he decided to sell his businesses. And he usually actually used that money from those business to literally start bringing kids into his home. And he and his wife, Esther, they already had eight kids. So he just started bringing kids in slowly, three kids initially. Then, you know, a few months later, that was 300 kids. And today he has six different homes and campuses um, and serves more than, you know, 3,500 children collectively in some form or another. It's a pretty amazing thing. We just took pause and reflect on the Lord speaks to him and tells him this is what he wants him to do. And he goes home and tells his family. And this is just, I mean, they're living pretty comfortably there. He has many successful businesses and he comes home and he's telling them he's going to sell everything. And he feels like they're supposed to start bringing in the children off the streets and provide a home and care for them. And 
Do you know how the family responded right away? Yeah, we didn't talk about that too much in the interviews, mm-hmm. but there is a really compelling scene in the documentary yeah. where that is reenacted, where he basically comes to his family, Esther, his wife, and his eight kids, and you know basically tells them what God's calling him to do. And it's really amazing. You know, the documentary portrays it. You know that the kids you know, who are now grown and actually helping run MCF, Mm. uh, Molly Children's Family. But they obviously, you know, were conflicted in the beginning of having all these kids come in and and share in all equally and in the family, you know, participate in their family. And then Mm -hmm. Esther, honestly, just I didn't uh, get a chance to talk to her, unfortunately, Mm. but just from hearing about her, she just seems like the real a real hero in this story of just, you know, taking in all of these kids and kind of saying, all right, this is, you know, our work together. And so she's still involved, you know, taking care of the kids to this day. So she's been a mommy, mommy Molly to thousands. And they call her mommy Molly. And yeah, they call him daddy Molly and mommy Molly. Wow. Yeah. So it's really, really sweet, you know, the way the way they do that. So tell me about how it grew, because he didn't start out taking in hundreds upon hundreds of children. He must have, you know, this must have just started small. And how did it grow? Yeah, so from that first day in 1989, he started building relationships with some of the kids and becoming known. Um, He recounts in one of his autobiographies that he went out to the streets and just started building trust and getting to know the kids. And then he ended up bringing three kids home. And he did ultimately, you know, that became 300 kids a few months later, (laughs) which is crazy. And so did you just go out every day and just bring home a a couple more kids? Yeah, that's the way he tells the story. That's how he tells the story that, you know, he started bringing kids home. So, yeah, which is just interesting to think of how probably chaotic that was to just start having more and more young kids. Yeah. Well, and you're having to transition over and over again with new new faces and kids having to Mm -hmm. learn the you know, how the family is going to run and all of that. So it's just Mm -hmm. every day is a new transition. It's Mm -hmm. pretty Mm -hmm. amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can you describe the scope of the operations today? I know that there are six facilities, is that right? Yes. Throughout Kenya? They have six locations around Kenya. They all have a different purpose. Their main location is uh, Moli Children's Family, MCF Dalani, which is located about two hours northeast of Nairobi. And that houses children and who live there year round um, where they have school, um, recreational activities, counseling. One of the interesting things that I found is that they really do um, work with the kids in terms of rehabilitation and counseling and therapy, which is, I think, really valuable. But they also find education and obviously food and shelter and medical care to be really important. And then also just the family philosophy of just calling themselves a family. Um, That's kind of a unique thing, even though there are children's homes all around uh, Kenya. You know, just the fact that they want to have, you know, the daddy and mommy model and, you know, help the kids consider the fact that they're all siblings. Yeah, it's an interesting model. Some of their other locations, they rehabilitate sex workers and offer some of their locations more of a community outreach model, from my understanding, with education and, you know, food and other resources. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. And then I guess I should also add what's interesting at the Delani campus, at least, is um, what's attracted 
other people to try and replicate what they do and attracted, honestly, a lot of international connections is that they have sustainability efforts in terms of several farm or a large farm, I should say. And recently they just started um, a poultry farm. And so they're really feeding the kids off of the farm that's there. And so just talking with experts, this sounds like it's pretty common at children's homes for the children's homes to have, you know, a farm and try and, you know, be, you know, sustainable as much as possible. But MCF's scale is just crazy. They just were able to bring in a lot of, you know, international resources and actually started, they told me they have been selling, you know, produce and some of their crops abroad even. So they actually, they still rely on donors um, and people who help, you know, sponsor the kids or, you know, fundraise. But, you know, the sustainability efforts are really cool. That's awesome. And I'm sure that, and I wanted to ask about that a little bit later about how during the pandemic... That must be especially helpful to have um, sustainability and, and be able to rely on your own food that you're growing. Well, tell us about the global pandemic has hit the Moli family homes especially hard. And how did they respond to it? Yeah. So before, um, I, well, kind of related, actually, the reporting process of the story was really interesting because I you know, had planned or was hoping to visit them and actually do in-person reporting since that would obviously be ideal. Some of our um, pieces were in-person, which was good. Some of the more local ones um, for the December issue. But for this issue, we, or for this article specifically, I relied heavily on, as we all have, on Zoom and a lot of other calls probably did a dozen different calls and to, you know, see as much as I could and um, have as many interviews as I could. But because I wasn't able to travel to Nairobi, we had a freelancer from Nairobi, Tony Anulo, who was able to travel out there for a couple of days. So some of he was able to kind of fill in the gaps and have some in-person interviews in a safe and socially distant way. So that was really great to have that addition. But yes, they have honestly, you know, everybody's been hit in some way or another through COVID and they were hit as well. Um, so one of the interviews that I did was with Charles's youngest son, Dixon Mully, um, and he runs the operations there. And he was able to describe some of um, what happened there. We have a clip of the interview we recorded, Kara, of Dixon Mully actually describing some of those very challenges. All the children in Mully children's family did not go home, like did not leave the premises, did not go anywhere because they have nowhere to go. So there was this responsibility on one hand to protect them as per the government rules and regulations and the Ministry of Health. And at the same time, you need to feed them. So we came up with a mechanism of, um, since we have a housing in the property and we have some staff members who stay within, how many staff members would we be able to have them stay within the property without going out? And and the ones that will get to do that, we increased uh, the uh, uh, amount of work that they had to do. We also had to, to change our planting um, in agriculture, our planting schedule, which was basically to reduce a little bit on the planting so that we do not have too much too many crops to harvest, basically trying to do something that is more manageable. Um, and so that was a, a, also a big problem because when you plant less, then you harvest less, then you have more expenses of buying food or you have high expenses due to low income, uh, due to low sales. But one of the ways we were able to cope with that is that way. The other thing that we were able to do during the first few months of the outbreak of the pandemic was to uh, sensitize the children as much as we could on how the disease is transferred because many people assume everyone knows 
But when you have 3,500 children, um, they look upon you to, as a parent, and that's for my parents, and of course, MCF as, as a family, and just to assure them, because there was a lot of panicking, um, and, and just assuring them and what they need to do. So uh, we had to invest on sewing masks. My mom, um, first of all, you know, uh, with the girls and, you know, making masks and teaching the kids to wash their hands and all these things. Because what we were trying to do is, one, ensure that we follow the government rules and regulations because we are an institution, but at the same time, be able to realistically assure the children that, look, we are, you're not going to get corona if you do not leave the property and go interact with people that you do not know. So we will like to have more games within the compound with the children, have more activities for them and just engage them. So it, it, it was a very confusing time in, in the month of March and April. But by May, we kind of got the hang of it because also the government um, closed down all schools. Some of the Moli homes are residential and some of them aren't. Some of the kids live part-time with their families. Can you talk about that difference and why some kids are still connected to the homes if they still have families? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, probably some of your listeners are familiar with, you know, the controversy in orphan care and the international development community over um you know, different children's homes or uh, orphanages and the idea that, you know, in some situations, um, a lot of the children do have at least one living parent. And so as I was researching this article and talking to different experts, that was kind of something that added some complexity to the story in the sense that we actually published another article um, back in October by Krish Kandaya talking about how a lot of children's orphanages or, and children's homes, I should say, uh, closed because of the coronavirus outbreak. So you're like, where are these kids going? Oh, they're going back home, you know? And it's like, wait, they have a home? Why are they staying in this children's home? So there, there is definitely some controversy there, but, you know, a lot of the experts I talked to had differing opinions, but most seem to agree that there at least is a place for children's homes. And so something that Molly is offering is, you know, a resources like education, medical care and different resources, whereas maybe they don't have those at home or maybe they are in an abusive situation or something like that. So there are a lot of different factors. And so just from the people I, different people I talk to, even some of the people who are doing work with churches to increase the amount of work um, that local churches are doing in terms of orphan care, even they were just talking about, how, you know, how there is seems to be a place for ch- children's homes that are doing this well. So it is, you know, certainly seems like a really complex situation and it's not clear cut. So yeah, in this situation, even um, Charles said that only about 50 of their kids have no living parents. So that means half of their kids do have, you know, at least one living parent. So yeah, that definitely adds a different level of complexity. So (laughs) it's complicated and complex and kind of even like we see in our own systems here, you know, a lot of systems need repair, but you know, this is an effective stopgap in some cases. While other children's homes, they closed during the pandemic and the kids, as you said, had to go back home to whatever situation that was, the Moli's children's family, their kids stayed there. They were able to keep their kids there. And I'm wondering what made it possible for them to keep all those thousands of kids in the pandemic. 
Yeah, so they actually had some of their staff actually able to, instead of having people coming in and out of the children's home, they had some of their staff actually commit and some of their teachers commit to staying and living at the children's home. So they actually, you know, left their situations and stayed on campus. And you mentioned in your article that there were no cases of coronavirus in the home. Is that I mean, yeah, they, that's what they told me. So, you know, because I wasn't yeah. there, I don't know. But yeah, that's according to, I did ask yeah. them that question and they said, you know, God's been good. And and that, and honestly, that was something, um, you know, I talked to Dixon Mully, um, who's Charles's youngest son, and mm-hmm. he was just saying how that was actually one of the bigger anxieties, even above finances or mm-hmm. getting the right resources, having enough, you know, hand-washing yeah. supplies. It was actually... You know, a lot of these kids suffer from HIV or diabetes and these other, um, you know, illnesses. And they actually, you know, were really afraid that if COVID, you know, came into their children's home, you know, that would just spread like he said, literally spread like wildfire, you know. So that was definitely, you know, something they really had to trust the Lord with and were definitely um, fearful of. So sounds like the Lord's been good to them. And they've actually taken those precautions pretty um, carefully as well. Here's another clip of Dixon talking about how the adults moved into their homes. It was more of ensuring that our 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 family, our staff members are on board that mm-hmm. they'll also need to sacrifice not to go home to be with their with their families. Uh, because once you leave the property, especially during the month of you know March, April, May, when no one knew about coronavirus, it's like then you, you can't go home. So you either stay with us or you go home. And and we we thank God so much because everyone was so much accommodating to be able to mm-hmm. go the extra mile to serve these children, to go the extra mile and support our family towards you know giving hope for these children. And 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 and, and we saw so much love from our staff members who mm-hmm. um, accepted to be in the compound, stay with us, and. Continue the services that we offer to the children. Yeah. That's such an act of love for them to leave their own families to live with the children to make sure that they're cared for in the pandemic. Carrie, you talk in your article about how the pandemic has also had a difficult impact on charities around the world. And the Molly Homes were no exception. Have they experienced drops in donations or financial difficulties and how have they weathered that? Yeah, so they've definitely, I mean, you know, Dixon talked a little bit about how some of their, you know, they just had to cut down on the amount of supplies because people, they weren't able to sell their produce because they couldn't leave (laughs) the children's home. So, you know, they definitely didn't quite have the same number of, you know, financial resources that were available to them. And I talked to talk to a few experts in the article that were talking about just in general, how a lot of nonprofits are struggling, like if they get their donations, you know, from Western sources, and we're all kind of, you know, have been feeling financially insecure, and economically insecure over the last few months, then yeah, it logically follows. They were, you know, in a financial tough spot, but because of the sustainability, because they actually do feed the kids, that's at that point, that's the most important thing is to be able to feed the kids. And they were able to do that because of the farm. And because even though they had fewer employees there, I think they dropped down from several hundred to less than 100 who were able to actually take care of the farm. So obviously production slowed. But yeah, Dixon talked to me a lot about that. 
anyone who has followed up on in the implementation of a sustainable project, uh, regardless of the fact that it was a difficult moment and it is a difficult moment, the fact that their dependents are able to have food on their table, that in itself is a miracle and something that just changes the entire equation. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to be able to produce food for all those children. It's a blessing from God. More like the Joseph thing, um, you know, um, mm-hmm. you, you don't know when, when you're doing something, um, but, but when, when the drought came uh, during the time of Joseph, and then now the seven years of plenty were important. So um, now that the pandemic came, the fact that we were always doing production of food and, and being self-reliant in one way or another, um, it was just a blessing from God. One of the themes in our podcast is hope. Seeing what God is doing, even in the midst of the challenging times, renews our hope. How did writing this story impact you personally, Kara? Did it have an impact on your sense of hope? Yes, thank you for asking that question. I think that's one of my favorite things, being a journalist Mm. and being a writer, is being able to talk to people about their stories and everyone has a story and there are some that are especially inspiring and even in the complexities and controversy over children's homes and even just with the you know tough things that they're going through with the pandemic I honestly from a faith perspective as a believer was just very inspired with how faith-filled mm. Charles and Dixon and everyone else involved that I talked to were and are. There are stories, you know, if, you know, you listen, watch the documentary or read his autobiography, we weren't able to put it in the story, but he talks about some of the miraculous encounters he's had and that God really intervened in a quite miraculous supernatural way in some areas. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I was definitely struck and you know, hope filled with people around the world, other Christians um, who are in very different circumstances, um, who Mm -hmm. are relying very literally (laughs) on the Lord Mm -hmm. to take care of them. So one of the things when I was talking Mm -hmm. with Dixon um, in, in our conversation, he told me he compared their story to the story of Joseph in the Old Testament and how he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams um, to predict seven years of plenty in Egypt before the famine and how they stored up over the years. So just knowing that the Lord had provided for them over the last few years for such a time as this, mm-hmm. even though they didn't know it was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he said he did admit to, you know, being anxious and worried as we all were <laughs> when this started. But I think, yeah. you know, he sounded, he inspired me in the way he was saying he handled it, just in the sense of being able to turn mm-hmm. to the word and pray more and love more and, you know, uh, he quote, he phrased as tap into the Holy Spirit, which I can echo that. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that definitely was inspiring. And even with these children who are facing some really tough situations, mm-hmm. just to be able to have um, people who love them and really care about them in the Imago Day was mm-hmm. really valuable to see. As you were talking too, it just made me wonder how his example of how he relies on the Lord, his own faith is transmitted or passed down to the children in the Mm -hmm. home. And I wasn't sure if you were able to ask him, you know, kind of how he parents. I mean, you think about Mm -hmm. all of those children that are there and how he um, kind of helps them grow, not only like education and, you know, feeding and providing shelter, but how is he um, instilling faith and sort of the values that he espouses Mm -hmm 
to um, help them grow into men and women of character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they actually, so at this point, because of the scale, he actually has people who work full-time. He has a full-time pastor there. And she actually, you know, is teaching the children, counseling the children. Um, And so she was able to Mm -hmm. share with Tony when he went over there some of the interactions she's had with the kids and just seeing how some of them came, like, very suspicious of religion or God and have just, you know, seen the, felt the love. And then also, you know, as they, you know, attend, you know, services there, able to experience him as well. So I do know that that is something Mm -hmm. that is, you know, valuable for the children as well. Well, it's pretty amazing to think that they didn't have to do this, but they chose to do this and they chose to follow the Lord. And it wasn't easy. They had people that thought they were crazy or didn't believe in what they were doing. Or, um, And it's amazing to see. I think the children are watching and they're seeing authentic faith lived out. They're, people are laying down their lives for one another and sacrificing for one another their time and their resources because of the gospel and because their hearts have been changed. And so it's just such a beautiful picture. And I just, I was so struck by his faith and his boldness to just act out on faith when he felt like the Lord was telling him to do something. He he was bold and he moved forward. And I, one of my favorite parts in the documentary was when they go to their retirement land and it's just pretty desolate. They have to find water and the Lord tells them exactly where to start digging. And they dug for a long time <laughs> and they eventually hit rock. And Charles said, no, you got to keep, keep digging. And they did. And they hit water and that was kind of how the water came to their their land. But just his boldness and perseverance was so astounding. It was beautiful. Yeah. And as an American, I think, I think as a middle-class American, I think, oh yeah, you know, surrounded by people who want mm-hmm. to do good things and, you know, and you know, millennial perspective of wanting to save the world. You're like, I would do the same thing. But in reality, it's very countercultural. You know, he had become very successful, very wealthy, and he decided to sell all of those, you know, businesses and now is relying, you know, off of his farm and mm-hmm. off of, you know, support from others to run this children's home. So, and like you were saying, Sasha, I uh, grew up on the stories mm-hmm. of George Mueller who took care, you know, and some of the yeah. miraculous stories that he told of just how God provided, literally provided mm-hmm. food, you know, when he didn't have any. And so, when you do something that radical to obey God, just like how he shows up. And so I definitely see that in Charles's story. Um, Yeah, and it's inspiring to rely on the Lord (laughs) Mm -hmm. in that way. Yes. Well, is there anything else that we didn't ask you, Kara, that you would like to share with our listeners? I mean, there's probably a lot more to his story, but no, I think this covered it. I think, honestly, they have a really interesting story. And um, if you want to know more, you can go to mcfus.org. Um, that, that'll tell you more about his company or about his children's home, um, about sponsoring the children. And then, of course, you know, read the article. It's on, uh, on our website under a different title, How the World's Largest Family Survived a Global Pandemic. So that's online to read as well. Awesome. Yes. It was such an inspiring yes. article. And I'm glad we were able to have you on the this new podcast and feature more in depth about 
your process of reporting it as well. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Kara. Yeah, thank you both. This is so fun. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment and help us spread the word. Share about it on social media or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. Adopting Hope is a production of Christianity Today. It was produced by Mike Cosper, Joyce Dalrymple, and Sasha Parker. It was edited and mixed by Alex Carter. Our theme song, We've Got This Hope, was by Ellie Holcomb. We'll be back next week with another story. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.